The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So I didn't even know Stephen Hicks could sing. If you guys know Stephen, um, Stephen is on the executive team here and he kind of runs Ecclesia. And I walked in the doors and Stephen Hicks was in a guitar and singing. And the problem with Ecclesia is everyone is so musically talented. And I thought if, if they're ever down a singer, um, this is not going to be an option because I have no musical talent. So um, I, I always find that whatever song they're singing right before always ties in with my sermon so well. And we just repeated those words, you are good to me. You are good to me. And today's really about looking for goodness in ordinary life. I think oftentimes we get so busy. Recently, my drug of choice is busyness. I just like to avoid myself and stay as busy as I can. And it's not always productive. And I think in that busyness, we miss opportunities to view our life as a life full of purpose and meaning and sacred spaces. And so we're gonna start off today with a 10 minute video. And 10 minutes is a long time. And I really debated whether this video should be shown or not. Because I don't agree with the video 100% theologically, it's not necessarily a Christian video, but I think it really highlights how our busy, ordinary lives can be reimagined through a sacred lens. And so we're gonna watch it. Some of you have maybe heard it before. It was a commencement speech by a guy named uh, Foster Wallace, Stephen Foster Wallace? David, David Foster Wallace. Um, it was his commencement speech and they made it into a 10 minute video. So we're gonna start off watching that video right now. There are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? The point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude. But the fact is that in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have a life-or-death importance. The plain fact is that you graduating seniors do not yet have any clue what day in, day out really means. There happen to be whole, large parts of adult American life that nobody talks about in commencement speeches. One such part involves boredom, routine, and petty frustration. The parents and older folks here will know all too well what I'm talking about. By way of example, let's say it's an average adult day, and you get up in the morning, go to your challenging white-collar college graduate job, and you work hard for eight or 10 hours, and at the end of the day, you're tired and somewhat stressed, and all you want is to go home and have a good supper and maybe unwind for an hour and then hit the sack early because of course you have to get up the next day and do it all again. But then you remember there's no food at home. You haven't had time to shop this week because of your challenging job. And so now after work, you have to get in your car and drive to the supermarket. It's the end of a work day and the traffic is apt to be very bad. So getting to the store takes way longer than it should. And when you finally get there, the supermarket is very crowded 
because of course it's the time of day when all the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping. But you can't just get in and quickly out. You have to wander all over the huge, overlit stores, confusing aisles to find the stuff you want. And you have to maneuver your junkie cart through all these other tired, hurried people with cart, et cetera, et cetera, cutting stuff out because it's a long ceremony. And eventually, you get all your supper supplies, except now it turns out there aren't enough checkout lanes open, even though it's the end of the day rush. So the checkout line is incredibly long, which is stupid and infuriating, but you can't take your frustration out on the frantic lady working the register, who is overworked at a job whose daily tedium and meaninglessness surpasses the imagination of any of us here at a prestigious college. But anyway, you finally get to the checkout line's front and you pay for your food and get told to have a nice day in a voice that is the absolute voice of death. And then you have to take your creepy, flimsy plastic bags of groceries in your cart with the one crazy wheel that pulls maddeningly to the left, all the way out through the crowded, bumpy, littery parking lot. And then you have to drive all the way home through slow, heavy, SUV-intensive rush hour traffic, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone here has done this, of course, but it hasn't yet been part of you graduates' actual life routine, day after week, after month, after year. But it will be and many more dreary, annoying, seemingly meaningless routines besides. But that is not the point. The point is that petty, frustrating crap like this is exactly where the work of choosing is gonna come in. Because the traffic jams and crowded aisles and long checkout lines give me time to think. And if I don't make a conscious decision about how to think and what to pay attention to, I'm gonna be pissed and miserable every time I have to shop because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me, about my hungriness and my fatigue and my desire to just get home. And it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way. And who are all these people in my way? And look at how repulsive most of them are and how stupid and cow-like and dead-eyed and non-human they seem in the checkout line or at how annoying and rude it is that people are talking loudly on cell phones in the middle of the line. And look at how deeply, personally unfair this is. If I choose to think this way in the store and on the freeway, fine. Lots of us do. Except thinking this way tends to be so easy and automatic that it doesn't have to be a choice. It is my natural default setting. It's the automatic way that I experience the boring, frustrating, crowded parts of adult life when I'm operating on the automatic, unconscious belief that I am the center of the world and that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities. The thing is that, of course, there are totally different ways to think about these kinds of situations. In this traffic, all these vehicles stuck and idling in my way, it's not impossible that some of these people in SUVs have been in horrible auto accidents in the past and now find driving so terrifying that their therapist has all but ordered them to get a huge, heavy SUV so they can feel safe enough to drive. Or I can choose to force myself to consider the likelihood that everyone else in the supermarket's checkout line is just as bored and frustrated as I am, and that some of these people probably have much harder, more tedious or painful lives than I do. Again, please don't think I'm giving you moral advice or that I'm saying you're supposed to think this way or that anyone expects you to just automatically do it because it's hard. It takes will and effort. And if you are like me, some days you won't be able to do it or you just flat out won't want to. But most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice, 
you can choose to look differently at this fat, dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her kid in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's been up three straight nights holding the hand of her husband who's dying of bone cancer. Or maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at the motor vehicles department who just yesterday helped your spouse resolve a horrific, infuriating red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. Of course, none of this is likely, but it's also not impossible. It just depends what you want to consider. If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and who and what is really important, if you want to operate on your default setting, then you, like me, probably won't consider possibilities that aren't annoying and miserable. But if you've really learned how to think, how to pay attention, then you will know you have other options. It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell-type situation as not only meaningful, but sacred. On fire with the same force that lit the stars. Love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down. Not that that mystical stuff's necessarily true. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide how you're going to try to see it. This, I submit, is the freedom of real education, of learning how to be well-adjusted. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. That is real freedom. That is being educated and understanding how to think. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. I know that this stuff probably doesn't sound fun and breezy or grandly inspirational the way a commencement speech is supposed to sound. What it is, as far as I can see, is the capital T truth with a whole lot of rhetorical niceties stripped away. You are, of course, free to think of it whatever you wish. But please don't just dismiss it as some finger-wagging Dr. Laura sermon. None of this stuff is really about morality or religion or dogma or big fancy questions of life after death. The capital T truth is about life before death. It is about the real value of a real education, which has almost nothing to do with knowledge and everything to do with simple awareness. Awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us all the time, that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over, this is water. This is water. And so I show that video because I think it's a good reminder that our days can seem kind of petty and boring and mundane. And we can be tired in the grocery aisle. And it's hard to think of it as an opportunity to see God. And we don't learn how to do that in school. But I think if we don't do that, our lives and finding meaning is going to become ever more challenging. And I believe that the story of Easter is an invitation to resurrect meaning every day. It's an invitation to let the frustration die so that something that's more true and full of hope can resurrect at the grocery store or in traffic. And this is easy to say, of course, and harder to do. Last night, um, I got in at 7.40, my flight landed from Denver, Colorado. 
I am currently in seminary at the Iliff School of Theology, which is at DU. And I did my master's at Rice under a Hebrew scholar. I did my capstone in the religious studies department, but Rice doesn't have a traditional seminary, so I'm in seminary and I had midterms this weekend. And I landed and I was tired and I was prepping for today, working on my sermon on the flight. And my husband picked me up at eight o'clock from the airport. And I wheeled out, we have this trick at Hobby where he picks me up at the top floor where none of the other pickups are, that's where drop-offs are. So I met, met him at the top and waited with my bags and he pulled open his trunk and put my bags inside and we drove home. And I got home at nine o'clock-ish and I realized that I think that I left my purse by the curb at Javi, this was last night. And so I tell my husband, you know, you know when I wheeled out my bags to you, I was watching Ellen on YouTube, just waiting for him to come. And he, he said, don't tell me you forgot your purse because I've done this before. <laughs> so this is like, I didn't know how to tell him. This is the second time this has happened. I said, yeah, I think I forgot my purse. I've had this purse since high school. I'm gonna show it to you. This is my purse. Okay, so you, spoiler alert, I found my purse. <laughs> but this is my high school purse. It's just, I've had it for years. It's my favorite. And what's inside of it is my wallet, my computer, my social security card, which my husband said, why do you have your social security card in your wallet? I'm like, I just do, I don't know. I'm stressed, don't ask me any more questions. And so we called Southwest and South, he said, Southwest isn't gonna have it, you left it on a curb in the street. And I'm like, that's a good point. So we got redirected to, they gave us a number for the city of Houston, whatever that means. So I call, I'm like, is this Houston? <laughs> this is Erica, I live inside of you. And they had my purse, they'd found it. Whoever was on the other side of that number had my pink bag from high school, but more importantly, they had my social security card and my credit cards and my computer and everything was inside there. And we drove back and I had already practiced my sermon on my husband before I left for midterm exams. So on the way there, I said to my husband, I said, this is water. He's like, no, not right now, nope, <laughs> nope. Like, but this is ordinary frustration that's sacred. He's like, nope. He's just taking deep breaths. <sighs> and so it's harder to do, right? Especially when it's my fault. But we're constantly faced with these weird, awkward challenges that just come up. Every day we have this. This is our life. People are in front of us. They're slow. They're lazy. They won't get out of our way. And if we don't resurrect a life full of meaning through Christ, then we're gonna continue to be frustrated every day of our lives, hating everyone around us because they're in our way. And God always called greatness and extraordinary things out of the ordinary. I made a graph on the plane and it's a couple characters in the Bible that were ordinary people and God used them in extraordinary ways. So starting with Moses was living in the desert, a total failure as a prince of Egypt, ordinary man, but God called him to deliver a nation 
and he calls him to part the sea? I mean, Moses did supernatural, amazing things, but he was an ordinary dude. Or we look at David, a teenage shepherd boy facing a massive Goliath that was taunting the Israelites in an ordinary body. He was not a giant. There's nothing amazing about David besides the fact that God lives inside David and is amazing through him. And so what did David get to do? He got, he, God used David to defeat the giant and become the king of a nation. Or we look at Mary, an ordinary teenage girl that was a poor refugee living in Nazareth. And God chose her to become the mother of the most important person on the, in the universe. It's the reason we're all here today is because Mary bore that son. And she was an ordinary woman. Not even woman, girl, teenager. Or Simon Peter was an average fisherman. And Jesus called Peter to build the church. One of the most holy missions known to man was called in an ordinary guy like Peter. And Matthew 16 talks about this. There's a dialogue between Jesus and the disciples and Peter. And Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And the disciples respond, some say John the Baptist and some say Elijah and some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Jesus responds, and you, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the anointed one. You are the son of the living God. And so Peter was able to see something that the other prophets didn't see. Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, your knowledge is a mark of blessing. For you didn't learn this truth from your friends or from teachers or from sages you've met on the way. You learned it from my father in heaven. If you think of that commencement speech in the This Is Water video, he said, this is what you're not gonna learn in education, how to go through your life with wisdom. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, you, you didn't learn that I was God through anyone, but through a sacred interpretation of what it means to live with me. And so he continues, this is why I have called you Peter Rock, for on this rock I will build my church. The church will reign triumphant, even at the gates of hell. Peter, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be lost in heaven. And so Jesus calls into Peter, this ordinary guy, that he is the one that recognizes him as the anointed one, and he's the one who's gonna carry out the mission of the Christian faith and tradition. And so God is always recognizing sacred in the ordinary. And in our lives, I believe we're made in his image and called to do that. But it's hard when we're frustrated and tired or grieving or going through something. Um, I've shared with many of you my story of addiction. If you're uh, new to me as your pastor, I told this story about how I struggled with addiction to a prescription medication. And I go to weekly meetings on Wednesday mornings. I go to group meetings every Wednesday at 10 o'clock a.m. And at meetings a couple weeks ago, a girl at the group meeting asked me a question that I hadn't really been asked before. 
And it's a common question in recovery. And it is, what was your rock bottom? And I had all kinds of days that were bad. So I told her like all these days that I remember that I'm really not proud of. But the day I got better was actually one of the best days of my life. It wasn't a rock bottom day. And a lot of addiction stories go, I've reached this one day and then I got better. Mine doesn't go like that. I had a day where I had just landed. Um, My husband and I were in London and I had gone two days without taking pills because my prescription ran out in London. And I had never gone two days in a row without taking pills in probably seven years. And I could do it on vacation, but when we landed, the first thing I did is I got my script and I went to Walgreens and I went on a walk. And I thought, I just need my medication. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with taking medication. I abused it, so totally different than taking it as prescribed. I abused this, so totally different. But I, I thought, I need my pills. I dropped off my script and I went on a walk just to kill time. And on that walk, I had done that walk so many times in my neighborhood. But a warm breeze kind of came over me. It was a 75 and sunny day in Houston. And a bee buzzed by my ear and landed on this colorful, hot yellow flower. And I just watched the bee and I thought about how amazing it was. It was pollinating our planet. And I saw all these bright colored flowers and these two ducks that are in our neighborhood came and started walking with me and they always do that on every walk. And honestly, I normally think they're kind of annoying because the black duck always flies at me and it scares me. But I thought it was beautiful in this moment. And for the first time I was doing something ordinary, going on the walk I always went on, but everything felt sacred the bee, the ducks, the flowers. And what I realized in that moment is that when you numb, maybe you numb with shopping or booze or gossip, there are all different kinds of things you can numb with. But when you numb with a drug, you you can't selectively numb. So you can try to numb the pain and the disappointment and the loneliness and whatever it is you're numbing, you also numb the joy. And on that walk, I realized that maybe I was numbing whatever loneliness or discomfort I had in my life, but I was also missing an opportunity to see this beautiful walk that I didn't even know was strikingly beautiful. And that day, I never went back to get my medication. And that was the day I quit. And so I told this story in group therapy and I didn't even really realize that that, I've never, I'd never told anyone that story. But it's a story of finding sacred meaning in ordinary life. And Brené Brown just came out with her Netflix documentary, not documentary, um, special. Did anybody watch it already? A couple of you. So my friends and I are nerds and we have a viewing party in May where we're gonna watch it. But I, of course, have problems with delayed gratification, so I watched it as soon as it came out. And I'm gonna pretend, I hope my friends don't listen to the podcast because I'm gonna pretend like I waited. But in the, in, the, in the lecture, she says 
that the thing that people often miss about people after they pass away is something really small. And she gives this example of a mother who lost her child. And this child would always go to the screen door when they wanted to go outside and they would bang the screen door back and forth. And it was annoying because they had the slamming screen door in their house and they'd ask them to stop. And she said, what I wouldn't give to be in the house and hear that screen door slam because that would mean my child's alive. And so oftentimes, ordinary things we don't see as sacred and meaningful until it's gone. And I've been thinking a lot about my grandpa lately. Um, my grandpa was a pastor at this church in New Glarus, Wisconsin, which is this tiny Swiss town. There's a picture of his church. That is the United Church of Christ in New Glarus, Wisconsin. It's where I got married. It's where my parents got married. Um, it's a really special place in our family. And in this small town, everybody knew Reverend Weirwell, and everybody knew that I was his granddaughter. And I recently was asked to preach there in June, which is really special, because I used to tell my grandpa that when I grew up, I was gonna be a preacher like him. And he never saw any of it happen. And so I have this, this special time in my life coming up where I get to go to my grandpa's church. I'm gonna give a sermon. And then the way that this church works is you give a sermon at the church and a sermon at the nursing home across the street. And three of my four grandparents passed away in that nursing home. And those are the services they attended at the end of their life. So it, it's really sentimental. It means a lot to me coming up. And so I've been thinking about my grandpa. And if I ask myself, if I had one day with my grandpa, what I would wanna do, and it wouldn't be listen to him give a beautiful sermon. It wouldn't be watching him lead a big prayer at some event. It would be sitting next to him at an Astros or Texan game and listening to him yell at the referees. <laughs> because my grandpa, he was a pastor, but oh, at a sporting event, you would never know he was a pastor. <laughs> He would get on those refs and I was a basketball player and he would go to my games and he thought his granddaughter never did anything wrong. If I missed a shot, it was a foul. If I got called for a foul, it was not my fault. And he'd take off his glasses and he'd shake them at the referee. And that meant that the ref needed glasses. And so I used to be so embarrassed because my grandpa would come and I was in high school and like, you know, my boyfriend's in the stands, I wanna be cool, and then my grandpa's front and center yelling at the referee that I didn't follow. And it was embarrassing. And I have a picture of me and my grandpa after a game in college. Um, I have eyeliner on because I didn't ever play. <laughs> but that's me after a Wisconsin basketball game. And my grandpa, of course, came. He's in his Badger jacket and Badger hat. He had, he had uh, Bucky Badger stickers on his car. We called it the Badger Mobile. And there's another picture. We have one picture of my grandpa in the stands. And sure enough, he's yelling <laughs> at something. And that used to embarrass me. I hated this about my grandpa. Everybody loved my grandpa. They knew him as Reverend Weirwell, so they'd sit by him. They thought it was hilarious that he'd get so mad. 
I did not. But if I had one more day with him, I would want to have him go to a Texan game with me. Or I wish he would have seen one of my husband's games and I could have heard him just either yell at the quarterback that it was a terrible throw if he screwed up or yell at the referee. Because we miss these ordinary moments that are sacred and purposeful and meaningful. And if we notice them in the time, I think that's what it means to participate in resurrection. It's to look at our lives on a daily basis and resurrect meaning and hope and curiosity and love and all the things that Christ and Easter invite us to do. And when I think about how do we teach looking at life as sacred in our schools? Um, there's a big push right now towards media literacy in our schools. And I think that's so good and necessary. And I wish in some ways I had that when I was a teenager. So they're teaching girls that when you look at the cover of a magazine, I've been working on that word because I'm from Wisconsin. I say magazine, <laughs> magazine, however you say it. But when you look at a girl on the cover of a magazine, they're teaching girls in schools that this is photoshopped and it's the right lighting and they've had two hours of hair and makeup and that the person on that cover doesn't even exist looking like that. And our girls need to hear that. They do. And that's called media literacy. But I think as Christians, we're called to a higher kind of literacy. And that's a spiritual literacy. And media literacy says, I look at that image, I'm pointing like I have an image up there, I don't. But I'm looking at that cover of the magazine and I'm saying that I'm not good enough, I'm not thin enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not worthy enough. That's what media literacy teaches you to undo that. But spiritual literacy looks at a magazine and it says, my body was made for so much more than being desired and selling magazines. And when we enter into a spiritual interpretation about who we are, we start deconstructing the world in a way that is resurrecting and life-giving and hope-filled instead of shameful and objectifying. First Corinthians is kind of the famous quote on our bodies. It says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who comes from God and dwells inside of you? You do not own yourself. And we often read this, can you actually leave it up there? We often read this, thanks Asher. Um, we often, when, we, when we read this quote, I think we use this spirit who comes from God and dwells inside of you. We talk about our body as our temple, like we should eat healthier. That's when I hear this. Like people say, I'm gonna eat more fruits and vegetables because my body is my temple. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's fine. But I don't think that's what this is about. I don't think this is about going on a healthier diet. I think this is about reminding us that we were made for so much more because the spirit of God is inside of us. And our bodies might seem ordinary and mundane, but there is greatness inside of all of us. And there's nothing we have to do. In our boring, ordinary lives, it's already great. And the resurrection is an invitation to view it as such, to view the ordinary as sacred. Um, as a female, I've had a complicated relationship with food, especially in my teenage years. And it's something I really wanted to work on this year is 
just loving food, enjoying it, having a better relationship with it. I think in our diet-saturated culture, it's hard to do. We have all these messages about do this, eat this, don't eat this, and it's just a bunch of noise that gets really counterintuitive to who we are in Christ. And Janine Roth wrote a book called Women, Food, and God, and she has a quote It says, it's never been true, not anywhere at any time, that the value of a soul of a human spirit is dependent on a number on a scale. We are unrepeatable beings of light and space and water who need these physical vehicles to get around. When we start defining ourselves by that which can be measured or weighed, something deep within us rebels. We want to come home to ourselves. And Ecclesia, I think the resurrection is an invitation to come home to ourselves and be reminded that what's within ourselves is already sacred. And the job of seeing this is water and this is God is what it's like to be human and Christian in today's world. It's to say yes to that invitation as much as we can. I'm going to end today with a little exercise. I have a fish bowl. And I would like you to think of one thing bad that's happened in your life. You're going to have 30 seconds to think. One thing bad that's happened in your life and one good thing that came out of that. I'm going to start, I'm going to write addiction as a bad thing. So I'm writing it on this rock. And one good thing out of that, for me, is going to be either resilience or increased self-awareness. So I'm going to write self-awareness. All right, you have 30 seconds to think. So think of one thing bad that's happened. Could be divorce, grief trauma, and one thing good that's come out of that. You have 20 more seconds. All right, does anybody want to share theirs? the call to courage here. I know it might be awkward, but does anybody want to share a bad thing that happened and a good thing that came out of it? Yes? you found him (laughs) so I'll I'll put breakup as the bad and I'll put meaningful connection as the good all right so breakup on the on the rock and then on the popsicle stick I'm writing the good so meaningful connection does anybody else want to share theirs that's a hard one to top all right you A divorce? It, 
you guys are like my favorite. You should be up here. Oh my, I, I'll put um, divorce and then new, new family. I'll put new family. I love that. You guys are amazing. All right. Anybody else? Yes? Being widowed and then, so would you say grief is part of being widowed? Okay, so grief and then, um, and then getting connected with God? Note to know God. Okay, so with that, with that video, remember, that, that video was called This is Water. And so... It's cool, it's cool. <laughs> and so this is our life. And these are the things that happen to and with us. And we feel this. I think this is an invitation to us. If you've noticed, all the popsicle sticks have created a raft at the top. And I think that's how life hurt works. The bad stuff is still there. It's still in the water. It's still in your life. It's not going anywhere. It's not going away. But what good comes out of it can resurrect to the surface and create a raft for not only you to float on, but for you to invite others to join because this is what Christian resurrection looks like. It looks like resurrecting hope out of grief and divorce and addiction, and you fill in your blank, but it looks like the kind of hope that comes out of all the ugly hard stuff and becomes something beautiful because that's the invitation to transformation. Ecclesia, let me pray with you. Dear God, I pray that as we go out into our weeks and lives that we will remember that your beauty and holy sacredness is in our ordinary lives every day. I pray that we will say yes to the invitation of resurrection and finding meaning and hope and beauty in what often seems dead and tragic so that we can walk with you in a life towards hope in a life towards everlasting life, through and with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.